1: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Natalie Jenner about Bloomsbury Girls. Natalie is the author of two books, the instant international bestseller The Jane Austen Society, and the forthcoming Bloomsbury Girls. The Goodreads Choice Award runner-up for historical fiction and a finalist for Best Debut Novel, The Jane Austen Society was a USA Today and number 1 national bestseller and has been sold for translation in over 20 countries. Born in England and raised in Canada, Natalie has been a corporate lawyer, career coach, and most recently an independent bookstore owner in Oakville, Ontario, where she lives with her family and two rescue dogs. I loved this book so much, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices I'm doing great as well. And I am so glad you are here again. And I love, love, love The Bloomsbury Girls. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world for everyone to read.
0: Thank you so much. Actually, it's really fun to get this chance to talk about it in some depth because I think this is yeah, one of my earlier live interviews about it. So I'm very excited.
1: Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about The Bloomsbury Girls for those that won't have read it yet?
0: So The Boonsbury Girls is what I call a companion novel to my debut, The Jane Austen Society, which came out uh, exactly two years ago. It follows one of the characters. There were eight characters in the first book. It follows one of them in the next chapter of their life. It is very much a standalone novel. But in this book, a former servant girl turned literary sleuth who helped save the day at the end of The Jane Austen Society has been foiled by an academic rival lost the position she deserved at Cambridge and takes a position at a very old, stodgy, very male-dominated bookshop in London in exactly the midpoint of the 20th century in 1950, right on New Year's Day, pretty much. And she uh, joins a group of very dissatisfied and disaffected female employees And they decide to try and bring the bookshop into the future by staging a coup and a takeover. (laughs) And the book pretty much follows the way in which they managed to do that.
1: I loved all three of the women. They were just fantastic. And I just thought it was all so well done. How did you decide to write about them? And how did you decide to write about a bookstore?
0: So I don't... Plot or outline in advance. I'm what's called a pantser. I fly by the seat of my pants. So characters just kind of show up. And in terms of the bookstore, I had, ironically, Dory Weintraub, my publicist at St. Martin's. She, I want to thank her. We were doing a pre pub tour for the Jane Austen Society and we were traveling across the United States and it was in the middle of the pandemic starting. And when it was all over and the dust had settled and we were waiting for the book to come out, I wanted to thank her and I got her a first American edition of 84 Charing Cross Road. And that is one of my favorite books. Have you read it, Cindy?
1: You know, I have not read it and people always recommend it to me because it's epistolary, right?
0: Yeah. And I don't usually, I don't gravitate towards epistolary, but it has a great movie adaption with Anne Bancroft and Anthony Hopkins and Judy Dench. And in fact, I believe Mel Brooks bought the rights to the book for Anne Bancroft as uh, like an anniversary present. And they turned it into a stage play and then a movie. So it's got this great movie. So after I gave Dory the book, I watched the movie because I had it on my mind. And I'm watching the movie and it's May of 2020. And what's closed? The bookshops. What did I used to run? A bookshop. I used to have my own bookshop. The world is closed down. You can't go into bookshops. My book is coming out. My first book, I'm being published at age 52. And I'm not going to be able to go into a bookstore to see it. And I'm really missing bookshops. I think everybody was. That's if you love a bookshop and you travel, right? Cindy, it's the first thing you go see when you go to a new city. It's like, where are the bookshops? So I was really missing bookshops and I had this book and movie on my mind. And I had these characters in the Jane Austen society that I was promoting and talking about. And I was really missing them. And I remember saying to my agent, what if I wrote a book about Evie and followed her? The next stage of her career, because she's the youngest of the eight characters in the Jane Austen Society, has the most ahead of her to live, the most unfinished business. And I said, maybe New York, maybe London, maybe in a bookshop. And he said, ironically, that my editor at St. Martin's had actually suggested something to him pretty similar. And I thought that was fate, like a really good sign. So that was how I came up with the idea of the bookshop and why I was inspired to write about it. And I knew Evie would be one of the three characters. But I started chapter two and the first words came out, you know, the tyrant beckons. And suddenly I've got these two women and they are, I'm in the sort of like madman world where they're very secretarial. They're, They're treated no matter what their skills are as people just to fetch and type up. And I, right away, the two of them just came into mind, very different from each other, very different energy, very different appearance, very different backgrounds. One is very married, unhappily so. One is very single, aggressively so. And they were my foils. And then it was wait for Evie to show up and join them. And that's how it happened.
1: Well, you know me and my love of bookstores. And every time I travel, I do seek out the bookstore. And it's so much fun to see the differences and the similarities and just to browse books. And I loved this book when I read it a couple months ago, and I was reviewing it today before we spoke. And there was a part where Evie first walked into the store, and she's touching every book that she likes, and she's picking them up. And I thought only another book lover who loves to browse in bookstores would write that just like you did. And it just reminded me of every time I visit and the way books that I really love, I pick up and I flip through. And it's just such a wonderful thing, a bookstore.
0: Yes. And when you see books, you want to make them a part of you. And they're so obviously dependent on on word, not like music that gets into you and you can access it easily. So I find with books, we really do want that tactile experience. Also, Cindy, as a former bookseller, I do know that if you can get them to pick up the book, you're halfway to the sale. (laughs) So you need to have the cover of the book out. That's why covers are so important. And you want it facing out, but then you lose shelf space doing that. There's all these decisions that you make as a bookstore owner. But if you can get someone to pick up that book, you're halfway there.
1: Absolutely. And I was so curious as I was reading your book, did you have a model for Bloomsbury Books or did you just make it an amalgamation of a lot of favorite stores or how did that work for you?
0: It's definitely an amalgamation of a lot of favorite stores. I would say that visually some of its qualities, especially on the main floor, came from the movie version of 84 Charing Cross Road because as I was watching it, I was very intrigued by the use of these offices at the back for the manager and the secretary that were very kind of glass walled, a bit like a fishbowl where you could look out and see everything. And I wondered about that and what kind of person would want to be able to see everything. I mean, a lot of modern bookstores, that office at the back, you can't see in there. It's very messy and it's private. And uh, this manager in in the movie of 84 Train Cross Road, I think he liked to kind of be able to look out and see what was going on. I think Cindy, that fed into the creation of the rules of the shop as well. That sense of wanting to have some control over the environment. So visually, the main four especially, I think, was inspired by 84 Charing Cross Road, the movie. But in terms of the concept of the store, its many different floors, I had bought a used book years ago and forgotten about it and found it. And again, treated it as fate when I was looking for things on my shelves during the pandemic to read. And it was called The Romance of a Bookshop. And it was about the first 25 years of foils in London. It was written by people at foils. And it accounts the start of that amazing bookshop, if you've ever gone there. And the one on Charing Cross is very large, the flagship has many floors, and it's still there. And it's um, an amazing bookstore. And when you read the book, they talked about that there was an entomologist heading, you know, the science and nature department, and there was a master mariner, you know, in the history group. And that's when I got the idea that there could be many different men in charge of several different departments and what kind of personality would have as a result. And then I think other bookstores that very much influenced it would include Persephone Books, which is one of my favorite bookstores. It is dedicated to reprinting the lost or undersung commercial works of women authors from the 20th century, and it's on Lamb's Conduit Street in Bloomsbury. It was. It's now in Bath, but for many years it was on Lamb's Conduit. And that is why I picked that street as the street for my bookshop in my book.
1: Oh, I love that. I was so curious as I was reading about Bloomsbury, where you'd gotten the idea and how you were inspired. And then I was going to ask you next about the 51 rules and if you wrote them yourself and how much fun was that? And then also where that idea came from.
0: So I had to think about that recently because someone else asked me and I went, oh, this is the leftover of the human resources career. (laughs) So for decades... (laughs) For decades, I was in human resources, and sometimes at very large national law firms and accounting firms up in Canada, like Ernst and Young. And you can become very familiar with handbooks, <laughs> lots of different things. But it really just happened that because I don't plot, I was writing the manager. And I think right at the very beginning, there is mention of you know one of the rules. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, he of course has a bunch of rules that he hammers home. And then more rules were created as the book went on and then became a trope at the end of the process of writing the book, when I submitted it to my editor, St. Martin's had purchased it already, but on a, what's called a option, like a partial. So when I gave him the whole thing and you know, he was really happy with it, but he said to me, you know, those rules, he goes, what if we were to head each chapter with a different one? And I thought that was just such a brilliant idea. And so that's, that's how that came about. And then ironically, as is always the way when you write, there's a lot of stuff your creative subconscious mind is doing that you're not aware of. And what I didn't realize that was a lot of the time the rule I mentioned in the chapter, I actually in that chapter show the rule being ignored, subverted or violated by somebody in that scene. And so that gave a hum uh, like a humorous sort of spin on the rule that starts off each chapter that it's about to pretty much be flouted. I just
1: love that. And I love that a rule started each chapter. And I was curious how that came about. It works very well.
0: Thank you. I, I love it. And I, I loved th- the first rule. It was very important to me. I was like, it has to be about tea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I also loved that you included historical figures. That was actually a favorite part of the book for me. Peggy Guggenheim, Daphne du Moyer, Sonia Blair. I thought that was really neat. Was that something that you decided to do from the beginning? Was that something that happened as you wrote? How did that come about?
0: A little bit of both. What had happened was I had watched a great Netflix documentary on Peggy Guggenheim the previous fall before I wrote the book, and there was this great throwaway line where they go that she and Samuel Beckett had had this affair in the 30s, and that they hold up at the Ritz in Paris for four or five days. And they didn't open the door once except to a tray of sandwiches. <laughs> <And> I remember <laughs> texting my agent like right away that night going, I want to write a story about five days in bed with Beckett. <laughs> it's like, but it, it kind of haunted me a little bit. Like that's what happens. You, you know, you're absorbing all these different little tidbits of information, a New Yorker article here, a Netflix documentary there. And I remember when I was pitching the book and I had written the first chapter the prologue with Evie. And I gave them a, a character outline, I would call it, as opposed to a plot, because I really didn't know what was going to happen, how it was going to unfold. But I remember saying that I thought it would be fun if some famous people could make cameos. So I mentioned Peggy Guggenheim and Samuel Beckett right away because I had this simmering need to want to somehow get that line into one of my books. And then I also had been sent... By one of the London bookshops that inspired my book, The Second Shelf. I had bought a Mansfield Park edition from the 40s with an introduction by Daphne du Maurier and the courier mixed up the pack- packages. And I got sent Daphne du Maurier's own memoir, Myself When Young Instead. So in March of 2020, I, I'm reading that and Daphne du Maurier starts to take up real estate in my brain. And I started to notice her like in the media, like any mentions about her, So when it came time to shoot out some names, in my little character pitch to my editor, I mentioned Daphne du Maurier, and I had researched her at this point a bit, enough to know that she'd had this very long, intense friendship with Ellen Doubleday. And I mentioned in my pitch to my editor that Nelson and Ellen Doubleday would end up also visiting the shop as characters. And it's 1950, and he told my agent, he goes... in in 1950, Nelson is now dead. (laughs) It's going to be harder
1: for him to visit.
0: So he had died the year before. So then ironically, what happened was, I think the fact that Ellen's now a, a new early widow in life, right? Got into my head, this idea of what women can help other women who has that fortune in life and bad fortune to be alone, but to be wealthy, to lack a job, to have a job. Um, that's not being appreciated by you know the workplace, etc. And I have in this book a couple of what I would call project widows, um, who are women whose children are kind of growing up and or they're single, and they've been widowed young enough in life. And they have the means and the time to think about how to help the younger women or other women in need. And that becomes a big theme of the book, actually. So that happened because Nelson was dead in 1950.
1: Well, I'm sorry for Nelson, but I really liked that storyline and I liked the inclusion of Ellen Doubleday.
0: Yes. And actually, I think, I believe that the past chairman of the Macmillan group was Ellen's, I think, grandson, which was one of those weird coincidences.
1: That is a weird coincidence. How interesting. I always find those things pop up when you least expect them.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, who was the easiest to write and who was the hardest to write?
0: The easiest was in a weird way Daphne Du Maurier. And I, I don't know if it's because I'd read, you know, her memoir and, and other books about her and she was really in my head, but I just totally felt like I got her. And I'm not saying that, you know, to brag. I just really felt this connection with her. Very similar to how I think I feel about Jane Austen as a writer and as a woman. So she, whenever I wrote Daphne Du Maurier, it just kind of really flowed out. It was also very easy for me to write Vivian. I really understood Vivian's quickness of temper and reaction and trying to, or having to kind of manage herself better to get results in life. And I'm a former career coach. So I kind of gave her a, a lot of those qualities that they're fun to watch, but they can get you into trouble. And I remember really, whenever I wrote Vivian, she just really came alive for me as well. What about who was hard? I mean, I'm really lucky, I guess, I, because my characters come to me fully formed. I don't ever have to do much work to inhabit them. They're coming from somewhere, I think, it must be so deep inside my creative mind. And when they show up, they're just there, and I already know everything about them. So I wouldn't say that any of them were hard to inhabit or convey. But I would say that I did find Frank, who is the rare books department head, and he comes and goes a lot in the book. He's, to me, still the most mysterious. And I think the one that I always had, in looking back, probably the hardest time, you know, pinning down just exactly what what I thought he was going to do.
1: That makes sense. And of the three women, Vivian, Grace, and Evie, who do you feel is the most similar to you?
0: Well, that's the really interesting part is that I think uh, there's a bit of them, each of them in me. And I think that Evie is, the book is dedicated in part to my daughter, the original Evie, because there are some of the qualities in Evie and even just time frame. So Evie was 16 in the Jane Austen Society, which happened to be my daughter's age at that time. And then she's 20 in *Boomsbury Girls, which happened to be my daughter's age at the time, but was not consciously chosen by me. It just happened that way. And then ironically, when I was writing Bloomsbury Girls, I was not aware of the research work that my daughter was doing for some professors at university. We weren't talking that granular about it, but it turned out that she was doing serious 18th century research into old texts and looking at blasphemy. And she was doing real detective work as a researcher. So Evie very much is sort of my daughter and me in terms of our, our diligence and our perseverance and our love of study. And our love of books. And Vivian is very much me in terms of her ambition and the parts of her that are a little more, I'd say quick tempered. (laughs) And, and Grace is me in the sense that I am, as a former career coach, someone that loves to listen to other people and be patient and be present for them and try to give meaningful advice. And I really loved Grace's calm, and it's something that I aspire to and envy. But the part of her that I could relate to is very much her patience with others and her, her ability to listen and provide solutions, which I really like.
1: I thought the three women worked so well together. It was a very balanced trio.
0: Yeah, I was really lucky that way. But I think that a, a triumvirate of women is pretty common in some books, and I, and I can see why. It's really fun to show the wealth of richness of anyone's, you know, personality. And what I love about writing multi-characters, whether they're men or women is getting a chance to convey to people the different psychologies and backgrounds that are at play. And yet how we are all ultimately wanting the same things, which is really that humanist approach to literature that I've always loved. Like I've always loved reading George Eliot and Ian e. Forster. And Virginia Woolf, and writers that for me show how human everybody is and make everyone very relatable.
1: I like that. I just felt they worked really well together and they all brought different characteristics to the table, but they were wonderful about looking out for each other.
0: I really loved that part as well. I really loved how when I was working, I used to be, I think, Cindy, you were a lawyer as well? Yes. When I used to be a corporate lawyer, There was this like a a big law firm environment, and there was this collegiality, and I always really loved having office jobs with a lot of people around me. So at some points in my life, I've worked very much on my own as a consultant and now as a writer, but I've always really liked being part of a team. And I think that's one of the great joys of the workplace, and I suspect it's one of the hardest things that the pandemic ended up creating for a lot of people was that detachment from that energy of the here and now, and we work together and we all kind of know how to work around each other and with each other and alongside each other. And it's a really nice way to do your job. I actually ended up binge watching The Office. I'd never watched it before, at least twice in the past two years, because I enjoyed it so much. But I really loved how it kind of captured that funness and the hijinks and how there's always these people that you learn to work with no matter what.
1: Well, and it's a wonderful experience to learn to work with those people. It's not wonderful while you're going through it, but it's a wonderful life experience because you need to be able to deal with all sorts of people. And I tell my kids this, like when they're trying to deal with a student in their class or a difficult teacher or something, I was like, this is just getting you ready for later. There are always going to be those people. And so it's great to learn how to deal with them and how best to operate in the real world.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that people have mentioned to me when they've spoken about Bloomsbury Girls is that they liked the fact that in the shop itself, no one was a villain. There are some secondary characters out there that are pushing buttons and, and trying to get a rise and, and trying to get what they want. But within the shop of the six men and three women at Bloomsbury Books, there's everyone has got an understandable reason for their aloneness and the way that they act in relation to others. And why they care about what they do. And I really, I worked hard on that because I, I wanted it to be a place where it had gone a little askew, but it wasn't a toxic, toxic environment.
1: I like that. I hadn't really thought about it, but I do like that as well.
0: I didn't think it would be a pleasant place for people to be otherwise. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's true. <laughs> what about research? What kind of research did you have to do?
0: Well, it's interesting because I do tend to write and do a lot of research before I feel that I'm ready to write. But it's not as much research as a book is going to need, obviously. So what I tend to do is I tend to read a lot of books and do a lot of online Googling and research online to get a sense of the key things that I want to pin down. And then as I write, I try to make sure that my goalposts, like the historical facts, I try to make sure that I am working within them to an extent. So I'm a writer of books set in the past, and that gets called historical fiction. But I do tend to think of myself as someone who's mostly focused on the characters. So what I try to do is get the characters and the plot and the arcs of their individual stories and then the overall arc of the book, I try to get that pinned down. And then when that first draft is done, that's when I might go back in and sort of find places where it's important for the reader to understand more of what was going on at the time, politically or socially or economically. And so I tend to do a lot of front end. And then as I'm writing, I do responsive research, I would call it. And that's, um, so it's kind of like a two-pronged approach.
1: That makes sense because, as you said, you're creating your characters in that time period, but you do want to get the time period right.
0: Absolutely. It's really, really fun is when people say, This really made me think about that time period. I just think that's the ultimate compliment as a writer. So you transport someone somewhere else, and it's a place they haven't been to before, and they bring it back with them to today. That, to me, is like the most gratifying thing as a historical fiction writer.
1: I didn't know George Orwell wrote under a pseudonym, and that was one of the things I learned in your book. And I loved learning that. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about historical fiction.
0: Yes, there's such a wealth of information. And what's fun is deciding in a way what you need to include. And then the other corollary of that is when you weren't intending to have a character or talk about something and you trip across something in your research and you're like, Oh, I have to find a way to get that in, put that
1: in. And, you know, that's such an interesting conversation because I think it's great when that happens. And like in this instance, I've learned this. I love to know it. It flowed beautifully in your story. But I think sometimes authors have so many of those little tidbits and they're trying to cram them all in. And then you're like, this is random. Like, why is it in the story? So it's nice when it can flow right into the book. It's seamless. I'm learning something, but it seems naturally put in there. And I'm sure it's a balance as to how many of these can I put in without it starting to seem like a history lesson.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the great things that comes from practicing law is that I do tend to aggressively edit as I write in the sense that I'm always consciously asking myself, almost like you're preparing you know an argument um, or a negotiation it's like how necessary is this? Um, you know can we do without it? I'm actually asking those questions as I type and I really love when I'm done that I do feel that I've kind of not put in a lot of unnecessary stuff. I tend to be more on I think the lean side with some of the historical facts. but when they're in there, it's because they have resounded with me in some way either as a humor, moment. Um, For example, the short story that gets mentioned at the literary luncheon with Daphne du Maurier, it's a real short story. And I came across it in my research while I was writing that section of the book and it had been hidden or lost for 70 years. And it's a very bizarre short story. And I remember as I was reading about it, I was like, this is crazy. Like, how am I going to, you know, and how am I going to get this in this book? And then as I was writing that scene, I just decided I'm going to have someone stand up and ask her about it and have her be all, whoa, like, how do you know about this? And so that was, became always one of my absolute most favorite parts of the book is the moment where Sonia Orwell stands up and says the name of the story and Dumari reacts. And I, I don't get a chill, but I, I get a visceral reaction every time I read that scene.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was really curious whether that was an actual short story. And I figured it had to be real because truth is stranger than fiction. And I was like, this would be a really weird thing to make up, but I figured it had to be right. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. (laughs) Yes, my brain could not have done that. (laughs) And to attach it to somebody like that, you know what I mean? Like it would be, that would be a lot. People would be like, I had no idea she wrote that story.
0: (laughs) Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Oh, I just finished In the Face of the Sun by Denny S. Bryce. Have you read that one yet? I haven't
1: yet, but I love the cover and I do want to get to it.
0: Yeah, I know. It's wonderful. And it comes out next week, I believe. Um, I'm doing an event with her and to support it. And it's such a great, rich book because it has dual timelines. And it's about a Black family where the young woman in the 20s is dealing with the world of Hollywood, Black Hollywood in the twenties. She's an aspiring reporter. And then it toggles between that and 40 years exactly, 1968, which happens to be my birth year. And that's the, you know, the height of sort of the coming out of the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the height of the civil rights movement. And this character is now 60-ish and she's so much, she's just so brash and fun and feisty and she's a great character. Her name is Daisy. So I really enjoyed that book. I'm also rereading because I'm writing right now the final first draft. So I'm finishing the first draft of my third book, which has been sold to St. Martin's as well. It won't be coming out for a couple of years. And when I'm really in the crux of the first draft, Cindy, I find it hard to read a lot of fiction. So I tend to read a lot of nonfiction or I reread books that I've loved. And I'm rereading Le Divorce by Diane Johnson. Have you ever read that?
1: I haven't. I'm not even sure I've heard of it.
0: Oh, yeah. It was a finalist for the National Book Award back in like the 80s. And it was made into a movie with Kate Hudson about 20 years ago. But it's it's set in Paris. And it involves a piece of art that a family, uh, some families are kind of fighting over. And a, a young woman American woman who goes over to Paris where her sister is living and her sister's marriage has fallen apart. And it's kind of got that Jane Austen, Edith Wharton, comedy of manners aspect to it. So Cindy, if you like Jane Austen, you would love this book.
1: I'm adding it to my list right now because you know how much I love Jane Austen. So if it sounds at all like that, I'm going to add it to my list. Any
0: others? A lot of nonfiction on Rome between 1945 and 1955, which is, yeah, it's it's a lot of secondary research for this third book.
1: Well, that sounds fun that you're writing a third book.
0: Yeah, it's going to probably be a bit of a bridge between the first two books in terms of tone, but because it it does explore very painful legacy of Second World War. But it does follow the character of Vivian from Bloomsbury Girls forward about five years. And she's going to end up working in Italy at Cinicita, the film studio, as a script doctor after one of her plays gets trapped, torched by the critics. And so I get to carry over, like Peggy Guggenheim gets to show up again. uh, So I get to carry over a few of the characters, but it's a whole new book again.
1: Yes, because Peggy lived in Italy for a while, right? I've been to her museum, which I think is yes. in Venice, so I think she spent a fair amount of time in Italy.
0: Yes, I think that the fact that Peggy had lived in Venice and actually opened a museum in her palazzo there, I think that fact must have been percolating in my brain when I was wondering about setting my third book somewhere different than England. I was wanting to be more of a mental traveler again, because we're not traveling to write as an much right now, my family as we would like to. So that it was nice to go back to Rome.
1: I love that you were writing standalone books, but they're carrying forward particular characters. So you can read them on their own, but you can also return to these characters that you loved if you've read the first couple.
0: Yeah, it's something that I hadn't intended at all, but I think it reflects how much I love my characters and how I'm always a little hesitant to have to leave them goodbye. But Cindy, I also love the catharsis of a happy ending. (laughs) So I like to really, I really like everyone to kind of get what they deserve at the end, good or bad. And when you do that as a writer, there isn't usually much, you know, that you can kind of continue on with the story necessarily. And so I've really kind of fallen into this approach of having the characters with the least finished business ahead of them, get to have another venture with a whole new set of people. I'm really enjoying doing that. I think it'll be a trilogy in the end, though. I think, I'll, I think it'll be done with this one.
1: You're not going to write 15 books where one person gets plucked out of the story before?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it would
1: be great if you did, but I totally understand a trilogy as well. <laughs> well, Natalie, I always love talking to you, and I'm so glad you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast again, and I cannot wait for everyone to have the Bloomsbury Girls in their hands.
0: Thank you so much, Cindy. I'm just thrilled to be asked back and to have this chance to chat with you about it. And thank you so much for all your support of both my books. Absolutely.